Through his ever-present sunglasses, Bluey Monik sees the world in different shades of soul, funk, acid jazz, and R&B. And it's his unique global perspective that feeds his musical creativity. As founder, mastermind, guitarist, and producer of the always-evolving band Incognito, Bluey has consistently delivered a deep-grooved, soulful sound on every record since 1981. Incognito's sound is thick, richly produced, and quite addicting, both vocally and instrumentally. Over the years, he has introduced some of the best vocal talent to execute his musical vision. Let's just call it Bluey's Touch, because without him, Incognito wouldn't have been around for more than three decades. His newly released recording, Surreal, will only confirm his position as a truly international musical icon. Inside MusicCast welcomes Incognito's Bluey Monarch. Hey, Bluey, thanks for joining us today. Great. It's lovely to be with you guys. Yeah, Bluey, what an honor. Absolutely. It's just great for us. Uh, and to be honest, this should be really be a two- or three-part series, Rick, because there's <laughs> virtually impossible information of your career to, to cover in such a very short time. But uh, I'm sure uh, you know our audience is going to enjoy every minute of it, you know? Yeah. I imagine the years uh, have really flown by since uh, your first Incognito release. Uh, does it seem sometimes seem like a, a blink of eyes that the time has gone so quickly? Well, if somebody had told me when I first started Incognito 33 years ago that I would still be going and I'd still be traveling around the world and this would be a progression, mm-hmm. uh, I would have kind of said dream on, you know, because right. when you start something like that, you tend to think that every, to judge it by the life of previous projects. And as a teenager before that, all the projects lasted a year or two you know, three. So you have nothing to kind of gauge to in terms of longevity. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this right, is right. really the first big, big one, and it's kind of. <laughs> it seems like it has some more legs to go as well. Right, right, right. Well, you know, you've you've released um, gee whiz, over twenty five albums, and and uh, that includes, of course, over the time studio albums, compilation albums, some remixes, and. And uh, technically speaking, it's over the 31 years, but there was, uh, wasn't there between a, a span of time between your first release, Jazz Funk, and uh, your second release, Inside Life, uh, that was like 10 years? Was that, is that true or not? Yeah, there was an album called The Warriors Behind the Mask, which has just been released by a company called uh, Expansions yeah. in, in the UK. But uh, it was supposed to be the second Incognito album. And really? uh, okay. after that, because it had gone very fusion-y, Mm-hmm. I decided that Incognito was kind of losing its initial idea. Gotcha. And uh, then the whole 80s thing kicked in. You know, it, the, the producer was more important than the artist. You know, finding a producer that had a certain sound. Everybody in R&B wanted to get a producer that sounded like Jam and Lewis. Uh, everyone wanted to use uh, electronics and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and sequences. You know, uh, and it wasn't really conducive to what's, what's Incognito doing, you know. So in this period, I, I did the various projects like Stephen Dante, where I went to work with Marcus Miller in America. Yeah. Uh, I started to write for people like George Duke, Howard Hewitt um, in, in, in the States. And, uh, but my main, my main project was working with Maxi Priest in this period. Interesting. That's right. That's right. And uh, then I was also touring. I, st- I still did Incognito gigs. And the Warriors gigs and various kind of gigs. And, uh, and I was traveling a little bit as well yeah, right, right. around Europe and picking up foreign projects and working with musicians and, uh, until it was time for uh, to do Incognito again. And that would not have happened unless I rekindled my relationship with the guy who first put Incognito on air, 
a DJ called Giles Peterson. That's right. Who by now was no longer a DJ in a pirate station, but a pirate radio station, but now was working what would then be Universal, but Mercury back in the days, yeah. and formed his own label, Talking Loud. Mm-hmm. And that's how we kind of came back. <laughs> that's interesting. You know, I was thinking about uh, that time period in the 80s, uh, and and so much of the music that was coming out of the UK during that time was just genius. I mean, during that time, you know, groove jazz, fusion, funk could be identified in, in the likes of, of Mark King's great bass lines in Level 42, and, you know, and then there was uh, Scritti Politti with uh, with David Gamson and all his great sure. bass lines in Scritti Politti. And then, of course, Incognito was was right there making an impact, too. And, and can you tell us about the music scene at that time in the UK as, as Incognito was gaining momentum well as we started uh, kind of in the late 80s coming uh, to come, come back it's funny you should have mentioned Scripability when I was working with Marcus Miller in, in the mid 80s mm-hmm. Scripability was recording would-be's right. in the same studio at that time mm-hmm. and I spent and I, and I for a month I just heard would-be's right 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 <laughs> it was everywhere huh? I kept on hearing that same little line for about a month while they were editing that line <laughs> <laughs> I think it was, that record must have taken them that one single must have taken them three years exactly but, uh, but anyway uh, yeah it got, we start to gather momentum again because the time was right in London because DJs and musicians had a vibe going on by then yeah. that was very very strong clubs and musicians were really at one the funk and the jazz music had crossed over also into house mm-hmm and uh, there was like a, a dance scene, but there was also a retro jazz scene, yeah, yeah. which was kind of like the, which, which gave birth to the acid jazz movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could go into a club, and people would be like, one moment it'd be DJs, it'd be a band, and then dancers would take to the stage and the floor, and the same dancers would come off the stage and, and get on the floor, and then kind of join the, the party. And it was just a real a real scene. It was. People were buying certain type of clothes and caps and retro type clothing mixed with it. It's, it was I, I saw the whole new movement coming through, and mm-hmm. and it, then it would it would in time be dubbed acid jazz. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's it's interesting you mentioned that it was actually a movement. I mean, it was distinctive. You can see it visually, fashion, music, and I mean, yeah. it was it was it was a movement and. You know, um, speaking of jazz, you know, I, I, I remember that uh, one of my favorite albums out of the many that you've produced is Inside Life, and it was your second album. And um, and my favorite is due to the fact that you in- included so many cool, not only bass lines, but really neat jazz horns. I mean, very Miles Davis-ish um, yeah. approaches, your trombone solos. I mean, the last thing I'd ever hear is that uh, this type of uh, music would have tr- show trombone or or yeah. uh, or neat horns, but uh, you did it. Yeah, I mean the whole horn thing started in, in the really early seventies. Mm-hmm. The bands I was going to see, you know, and uh, then by the time we'd reached nineteen seventy four, seventy five, I was seeing bands like Tower of Power, and then I, I saw Earth, Wind, and Fire open for uh, for Santana in in London, and that really completely kind of laid the gra- the groundwork for what would happen with, with Incognito. Mm-hmm. And also by then, like you said, you know, I was also listening to Miles Davis and, right. and Freddie Hubbard and, and thinking, well, you know, it's like, and, and there was one trumpet player that probably had a big, big, big influence on our sound as well because of his productions, and that mm-hmm. was Donna Bird. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. he, he had that funk edge as well, you know, that whole jazz funk thing exactly. happening. So 
um, what what we were doing by then was em- really embracing the horn thing uh, because on the f- on the first Incognito album there was also a very big romantic story with horns mm-hmm. because I'd gone into that studio not knowing who was going to play you know and we'd pick up players from day to day there was an African guy who played on our first track in 1979 right. a track called Parisian Girl who right. I'd met only the night before um, actually my drummer had met the night before. In, 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 in a little bar called Sour Grapes. Oh and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and he brought him in, and this really flamboyant uh, Ghanaian guy came in with like big wide brim hat, you know, almost like a <laughs> giant version of Fela Kuti, you know, played pants and played, played this saxophone. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm never going to not make a record without the sax, you know. Right, right. He, he had that kind of impact, you know. And uh, and then also by the time it, ninety by nineteen eighty when we started to record the full album to be released in nineteen eighty one, the horn section was uh, consisted of two guys that had defected from Hugh Masakila's band when he'd come over to London from Africa. Oh my! And goodness. you've got to remember this was the time of apartheid, and right. uh, and they didn't want to go back. They wanted to stay in Europe, and they stayed over. And one of the first gigs they did outside of Hugh's gig was. Uh, uh, was incognito. So we had Peter Segona and a couple of other guys join us uh, on, on that lineup to record um, jazz funk. And then I had like Jamaica's premier trombonist who happened to be in town working with one of our sax players. His name is Vin Gordon. He'd played on Black Uhuru. Mm-hmm. He'd worked with Bob Marley. You wow. know, it's like he'd worked with everybody. And his first London recording session was incognito. Wow. So it's like it was it was just an amazing, you know, story of horns, you know. Since then we've used Cuban players who've come in town like Irakiri, uh-huh. you know, horn section. We've worked with some of the real dons of the horns, you know. I've got a question regarding your, those um, amazing instrumentals that, that pass by. Mm-hmm. I mean, you stumbled across them for whatever reasons, whether it's uh, defection or um, – but this international feel is now laying on your doorstep there in the studio. What, what are you garnering? What are you learning from them as your notions of, uh, of saying, um, wow, what have I got myself into? Then you hear them perform. I mean, what are you learning from these international you know, players as, as you go? I think it's just – the joy of listening, you know, it's like everything I, that I do is connected with the joy of listening. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear something and you're excited about it and you go, I want some of that. It's as simple as that, you know, and mm-hmm. then you find the kind of guys that can uh, help you to arrange that type of sound or you get these guys, you know, these London cats who are like more session guys mm-hmm. and then you kind of start playing them stuff you start saying to them look because you know you're a music head so you go you've gone in the mid 70s and bought a brazilian albums by banda black rio but mm-hmm. these cats have never heard it and what mm-hmm. you do is you put them in a room and you go listen we're going to do a haunt before we do the haunts today i want you to listen to this mm-hmm. and then it'd be like oh my god you know oh yeah they're using they're using fourths or fifths and i don't know what that is mm-hmm. because i'm a musician who's been producing albums all these years but i wouldn't know what it is, but I wouldn't know what um, music notes uh, are on paper, but I can hear them. So I'd be singing them these lines, and I go, "Yeah, you need to make it clash like this." And I play them the line on the guitar, and they go, "Oh, that's that's what you call force or fifth. Then I started learning little bits I that you. I could later can refer to, and uh, you know, and you know, right in the middle of that horn section, I'd go, "But I want it a bit more dirty on this line," and then I'd play them a Fela Kuti record, and they'd go, "Oh, wow." Then I'd say, "But I want it as slick as this," and you play Sea Wind. 
you know, or like kind of a, an Earth, Wind & Fire track. And, and they go, oh, yeah, I can refer to that already, you know, because those are the cats they've been listening to. But then, you know, you, they'll be doing something in the sound. Your record collection is like your production, really. You know, you're gonna, you want it more mellow. You want it to sound more, oh, we need to use more bones. And we used to use less trumpet and more flugel. Yeah. And then they'd be playing it. And then I'll go back and say, it's nearly there. You know, like on Still a Friend of Mine, it's nearly there. But then I'll go take out a Chicago record, play that. And then my, <laughs> this and is great. And then my boy goes, oh, yeah, got it. Bang. That's very cool. That's an amazing <laughs> process. You know, uh, I didn't know that uh, you were necessarily a um, uh, didn't read notes or notation. Um, you know, later on in the interview, I've got some questions regarding, you know, where did you learn the music? But uh, but you're not formally trained in uh, in, in no, notation I've, or reading. I've never been taught how to play the guitar. I don't. I just you know, I just I just put my finger somewhere and it feels nice. That's what it is, and then I'll try to memorize it. The band always laughs at me because I'm the I'm the last one to remember whatever what I've done. You know? <laughs> so the guys are always sitting in the studio when I'm writing with them, they're going, they record everything. You yeah. know, they have a little tape recorder going on and, or they listen to me really carefully because they know that the way my brain works, one minute it's in and it sounds great. Next minute I'll try to get that idea again and it's gone forever in the ether. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you know, Blue, you're a guitarist obviously. And yet I, Eddie and I were talking about this. It doesn't really um, ever surface too often in your music as a solo instrument mm -hmm. and you know you you know you kind of tastefully keep it as a constant in the rhythm section you know even though much of your music is sometimes instrumental and i just wanted to know your philosophy on guitar and how you blend it into music and, and where it's supposed to live within the music the reason why my guitar has the place it has is because of how i discovered music mm -hmm. um, my earliest recollection was about four or five years old at five years old i decided i was going to become a musician but i'm the first recollection must have been between four and five of being on the beaches of Mauritius and watching the musicians uh, just sit on a, on, on a rock waiting for the people to arrive from the fields, from the sugarcane fields uh -huh. where they work, from their offices in town or whatever, and just to throw their jackets on a stone and then having a drink and having food. And then they would start striking up, you know, a drum and usually a guitar but sometimes just a drum. But when I when the guitar came in, I saw myself. I saw my role. And the guitar was just a rhythmic accompaniment to the songs, to the stories. Mm -hmm. It was just like a, a vehicle for the stories, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. The rhythm and the words were what really meant something to me. Mm -hmm. And I always learned, I could write, most of my songs can be written without music. Yeah. You know, because mm -hmm. I can how, hold the melody over just the beat. So that's the way I write sometimes. I just like just the beat and, and, and my lyrics on top, and then I'll add the chords. You know, but when I do go from chords, it's usually guitar chords and, and very, in a very simplistic kind of way. And when I heard James Brown music, when I heard the, the, the rhythmic thing, and the guitar played like a real kind of secondary role mm -hmm. to James's and, 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 uh, voice and the beat, and again, it reiterated what I wanted to do. By the time I was 11, I came to England, and my cousin's... Took me. I think I was 10 years old, actually. And my cousins had taken me. We'd gone for a church meeting in Portsmouth. They'd taken me across to the Isle of Wight and uh, saw Jimi Hendrix. Wow. And uh, there was no point in learning to be a lead guitarist after that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, was like, it was like, I'm not going to waste any time. We've got Jimi Hendrix record. And then I discovered George Benson in my early teens. And I was like, I ain't going to be a lead guitarist. And There's no way. Because... I've, I've always had this idea of like if I found something and I could be as good as that or contribute something 
that is even on par or even better, then I'm in it. Yeah. But I'm not going to go and compete with something that I can't be better or yeah. as good as. Well, there's no one really much better than you on when it comes down to the, the rhythm guitar. Because, you know, the way I see your music is after all these years of listening to Incognito uh, works, uh, you know, I clearly see that, you know, it's almost like your guitar shapes the music. I mean, it's, you're right. It's, it's, it's sometimes in the underneath uh, the table, behind, and almost invisible sometimes. But without it, the music doesn't seem to have much shape. And, and you use it in a very nice, uh, tasteful way. And, and uh, it, it really does work, you know, in how you're using the guitar. Yeah, I mean, I've never really been a big fan of guitar solos. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's if it ain't Benson, uh, Metheny or Jeff Beck, you know, it's like you know, or Wes Montgomery or right. Hendrix, yeah. it's like it is uh, probably like 10 guitarists whose guitar solos I would listen to, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, after that, I can take it, but it's like go to a gig and listen to a, somebody playing guitar solo after guitar solo, I can't do it. Yeah, right. I, I, can listen, <laughs> I can listen to a whole night of Herbie Hancock or D'Angelo playing the Fender Rhodes. Right. Whole night. They can play chords and then go off into solos all night if they want to on the organ you know it's like and i and i'll be there but guitar it just i just want to leave the room (laughs) (laughs) you know especially if it's like kind of like samey samey like you know if you listen to like a smooth jazz guitarist playing like every other smooth jazz guitarist and you know or some rock guy playing the same riff you know i love santana records because when you hear santana on a record it's like santana it's only Santana can do that. Right. But how many records do you listen to? And it could be the next bloke. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it is, is you know, Larry One Note again. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I've been fortunate to work with some of the best as well. Right. You know, I've worked with, I've produced George Benson. I've made a record with Larry Carlton. Jeff Beck is a friend, you know, it's like, a, and, and incognito musicians have played with him. So I've got links with these people. And they are the greats. And when you listen to their music, I mean, I if Pat Metheny is coming to town, I'll buy a ticket and I'll go and listen because the melodies and the stories within his guitar playing, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, but you don't get that so much with, with so many guitarists. It's like, I'm either a George Benson pastiche or I'm a Jeff Beck pastiche or I'm going to kind of like do these, these theatricals on the guitar, you know, it's like, you know, I want to go see theatricals. I got the circus. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, it's, it's, there's there's specific things, and we all cut. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but we all cut from different stones. Yes, absolutely. And, and my place is like where there's it's rhythm. You are your record collection. You are what you read. You are what you grow up. What you eat. You know, it's like and you know, I like my food spicy. I like my music funky. You know, it's like and that doesn't mean that the next man is wrong. It's just that it's his taste. Exactly. You know, my taste is definitely not leaning towards lead guitar. Mm-hmm. Very neat. Mm-hmm. Very neat. Very neat. Let's go way back to 1999 to the album No Time Like the Future, and I want to check out a track called I Can See the Future. And this is from our guest today, Bluey Monic, and his band, Incognito.
know, your 1992 release, Tribes, Vibes, and Scribes, is really a significant record as you crossed um, paths with a very interesting singer, American singer from Baltimore, and uh, who's done an awful lot of work with your lead vocals, and her name is Maisalik. Mm. And she sang with with uh, Stevie Wonder in the past of her career. And tell us how you cross paths with her because she's a significant component of Incognito. Significant is kind of like really playing it down. Yeah, <laughs> uh, she's a, a major part in not just Incognito in my career as a songwriter mm-hmm. and uh, and also part of my path as a human being. You know, um, someone like Mesa comes into your life. It's um, definitely maybe another ingredient if Mesa came to somebody else's life. But Mm -hmm. definitely the combination of Mesa and I is like kind of a marriage made in kind of heaven. You know, it's like she opens up certain things in my my head. Mm -hmm. Prior to to Mesa coming into the band and and how she came into the band was she just finished Jungle Fever with Stevie. Oh, wow. She'd she'd done a couple of sessions with my friend Steve Harvey in Los Angeles. And I'd called all my friends in America looking for an American singer. They gave me a list. I went through the list and didn't know the names. I asked the obvious questions, which one is the least trouble, uh, which one ain't going to cost me the earth, which one's not <laughs> going to give me a, a, a massive headache, which one is not represented by management that I'm going to have to go through for the next two months before I even like get to, to an idea whether this person's going to work with me or not. I got a direct phone call from Steve saying, you've got to check Mesa. She's, she ticks all those boxes. And wow. uh, so I called her. Sweet. Just on the phone, I knew from the, from a speaking tone, I knew that she could sing. And then I got a coaxed her into singing a little Stevie Wonder, Don't You Worry, which I already had planned to record on the album without knowing she'd worked with Stevie. <laughs> um, so it was like serendipitous, you know. Yeah. Like she arrived, uh, I think, a few days after the phone call that I made. And uh, we went straight from the airport to the studio. Didn't even go to the hotel because I just wanted to record that voice, you know, wow. speaking for it. Uh, <laughs> And we recorded Change and uh, yeah. I Love What You Do For Me in that uh-huh. session on that same day. You know, as a songwriter, prior to that, in my head, I'm right. You know, you're looking for great voices to write for. So you have to fantasize. You have to think, oh, in the studio with me today as I'm writing this song is going to be Shaka Khan, you know, or, you know, Dionne Warwick is going to sing this one, you know. Sure, right. And, you know, it's like, so you, you have these fantasy singers. And Mesa ticks all those boxes of sultry, soulful, jazzy, economic, but kind of has got the right amount of licks, doesn't overdo it, not too R&B, kind of like, you know, not too much of that gospel over singing thing. You know, it's like just the right amount of like emotion, you know, squeeze it. It was like, for me, that was like a dream come true because Mm -hmm. I've never liked people who overdo it on any instrument, including the voice. Right. I've always liked people to have that ability to make you listen because of what, not so much what they put out, but how much they hold back. It's mm-hmm. like the great blues players, you know, it's like the great blues musicians, the great jazz musicians. Miles Davis, what notes he left out. Oh, my goodness, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. you know, and that single little lick that would suddenly, you know, listen to Kind of Blue and listen to the minimal vibes that are on that. And Mesa kind of did that for me when she came in a room and people like that I'd been listening to that have got that greatness don't really need to kind of blow all the time you know up until then you know it's like like people like Roberta Flack 
Yeah, you know, exactly, I heard, that, right. I heard that in Mesa when she came in. Like her jazz tones also, she had the, the tones of like great jazz singers, but didn't kind of like overdo the, the scatting thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was just overjoyed, man. Well, she's, she's performed on at least uh, seven Incognito albums that I can recall, but can you tell us uh, about how Incognito has changed throughout the years, that is from a personnel perspective? Mm, uh, hundred and no, so one thousand five hundred plus musicians and singers. <laughs> yeah, wait. Can you wrap that up for us in about three <laughs> Where minutes? Where do you want to start? <laughs> uh, I knew that no. was an unfair question. Yeah, no, really. No, it's it's more about I think the way to do it is just to talk about the philosophy of yeah of employing musicians and singers mm-hmm. and why they're there and uh, and why they're employed and deployed. You know, it's like and uh, what you write. I always felt that. Being in a group was like being in a gang, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I didn't like that. I didn't like being in bands that told me what to wear. Right. I didn't like in bands that told me that, you know, could I stand to the side because I was a lighter skin black than the dark skin guy and could we put this person here and shift it as it's like I, I didn't like all that. I didn't mm-hmm. like people uh, telling me that, you know, I look too Asian to be in a band that was – you know, this this band with this sound and, you know, and I formed Incognito for that reason, you know, as well as the music. Mm-hmm. But there was, you know, the idea, the name Incognito was chosen for that reason, you know, that we would be um, no matter what we look like or mm-hmm. whatever. It's more about what we bring without you knowing who we are, Yeah, you know, exactly. judge us by the music first and then see if you like the presentation. If you don't, if you're the kind of person that feels like the presentation has to be a certain way, you're not going to be in for this music anyway. Because yeah. the kind of people that like this music, they're just like more into the feeling of it. And then, you know, obviously we're, we're also aware that, you know, we want to present it well. We want to present it with an energy, but not so much by what we wear, but more that how the energy that we give on stage. You yeah, know? exactly. You know, if you go to an incognito concert, I don't want for you to feel like, oh, I've been to see this concert. It's like, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a music concert and, uh, yeah, they play great music and that's it. I want you to kind of go away from there feeling like energized and feeling positive about life and wanting to share a story or maybe a tale that you've heard during the gig or the way that music, they make connection with you. I want you to share that with people at work. Yeah. I want you to have that kind of impression because that's the way that bands like Earth, Wind & Fire and Santana and, and back in the days when I went to see, you know, Tower of Power for the first time and, 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 and you know, it's like that's, that's the kind I went running to my mates to tell them about it and we went to record shops and we shared information about it. I like that kind of a feeling. Yeah. I like, you know, you know I, I learned from an early age that music is not just entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's like when I saw those people come from the fields onto that beach they they were broken, man. They they were like they were they, they had hard work, man. They've been cutting sugarcane with with sickles and with blades all day long and carrying the big stacks of it on top of their heads. And some of these women were in their fifties and sixties, you know. And some of these guys were like kind of had been under that sun for eight hours every day, you know, doing this kind of work through rain and and storms. You know, they they've been stacking up this stuff and it's hard physical work. And when they by the time they arrived and they took that sip of rum and some of them would pour some of that rum in their fingers and rub it into their wounds, mm-hmm. you know, like a cleanser, yeah. you could see they were hurt. They were cut. 
they were they were showing each other's little bruises and cuts. They were it was like the talk, you know, how how's your body? How are you coping? You know? And then it would be like the talk would go from that and hey, have another drink. Hey, uh, have some food. And then it would be like, what happened to these people that were broken? Because the music would start and next thing I know, is they're dancing and laughing and spinning each other around and going, Ee! it's like as if they've, they've been given this life by the music, mm-hmm. you know, like a resurrection. And that's what music does. It, it resurrects the spirit and, and, the, and, and the soul. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have uh, two or you used to have, I think I uh, understand clearly is that you used to have a, uh, a string of a lineup of musicians to record your studio work and also a different one for your live performances. But lately, I've read that, that you've sort of combined them and you, you have one musical an incognito team that does everything. Uh, maybe you can explain to us, uh, introduce, you know, your keyboardists and your bassists who are amazing musicians. Tell us a little bit about them, would you please? Uh, yeah. First of all, the idea of actually having a band for the studio and for live, it's not necessarily a, a choice. Mm-hmm. It's just that you'd use like great, great cats and then you would put them on a stage and then you would stand there and you would see bands like, you know, George Michael and Wham come into the room and take half your band away mm-hmm. with, you know, after two gigs. You know, you would, I remember being in Manchester once and the, and, and the whole band came up to me, about three people out of 15, and saying, we're going off on tour with Basha because she has a massive American uh, tour. Wow. And I thought, okay, so I'm about to start, after Positivity, I'm about to start the next album in two weeks' time, and I don't have a band. You guys are going to be away. And you're thinking, oh, we'll do it when we come back. Mm -hmm. Dream on, you know? It's like, is my opportunity to kind of work with the next set of guys, you know? And uh, so Positivity had different singers, and different and a different lineup and that's the way it operates you know and then the bands now the musicians know that i could still call on that band from positivity at any time various musicians because we had some kind of feeling and and energy about working with each other but also the band from uh, 100 degrees and rising you know it's like so it becomes like a family of pool that i can draw from you know, maybe there's four, over those 1,500 musicians, maybe there's a handful, maybe four or five musicians that are definitely, the relationship is broken. It won't happen again right. because of, for whatever reason, you know, it didn't work. And, and we know that happens in the workplace. But overall, I would say, you know, I mean, so much so that I'm, I'm just about to start an agency that represents most of Incognito's past and present musicians that people can get in contact and I can record them and they can have them. That's mm-hmm. neat. It's very cool. You know, under your guidance, Incognito has produced such an amazing amount of work over the years. And, you know, such an evolution of work has uh, garnered a lot of international success. And, and I mean, you must see Incognito as, as an international, so to speak, force, don't you? I mean, it's such a – it's heard worldwide and, and uh, you have such a huge fan base now. It's had to be because – when you play this kind of music, you're not going for the mass populace. Right. You're not going out there going, oh, am I going to compete with whoever's in the R&B chart this week right, or right. whoever is going to be in the, you know, in the smooth jazz chart or whichever person's going to be in the dance chart. Right. It's like if you start thinking that way, the first thing you're going to do is going to formularize your music. Right. And uh, it's never been my intention. It's not my, the way that I am. So it's really just an organic type of experience with the people that you have you know i think what you're trying to say though is that you know the fans you've collected over the years are fans that are are 
like you said, it, it, you've picked them up organically through the love of your music, and there's they're probably such a loyal fan base, you know, from album yeah. to album. Once they latch on to you, they're going to buy your next album because they, they're loving exactly what you do. You're not necessarily the flavor of the day. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, but, exactly. But, yeah, and it's it's kind of like what Eddie and I look at our our show, Inside Music Cast. You know, our, our podcast isn't for everyone, but mm-hmm. yet the people who latch onto our show stay with us for such a long time because of the people we're talking to. But that whole international uh, scene that we have also is not just an accident. Mm-hmm. or just our records opening up mm-hmm. opportunities around the world. It's like it was a purposely driven thing because I would say on par with music, I have another love, which is traveling. Mm-hmm. And uh, being in, in a new place that I've never been to before, sitting on a beach on some island that I've never been to, or mm-hmm. going through a city that I'm going into for the first time, right, is a buzz equal to seeing people react to your music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's like... I, I can live off that thing. You know, I, I'd be smiling and singing down some road, walking down some road in Mexico. That, you know, it's like that. I don't know where it's leading to. Mm-hmm. Just like with the sun on my face and, mm-hmm. and looking at, you know, statues and, and, and trees of the likes I've never seen in my life. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's a buzz. It's like it's a drug for me. Yeah. So because of that, you know, I made investment with my money. I remember my manager saying, you can't afford to go to Japan. I said, but I've just made X on this record. I'm actually going to take my own money and I'm going to go. Well, if you want to waste your money, then like I'm telling you, let's wait until we get an offer. But after a year of waiting, I actually took my money and took my band to Japan. And it was the best investment I ever did in Mm -hmm. terms of career move. Mm -hmm. But my reasons were totally selfish. You know, I'd bought, you know, Santana live at the Budokan, you know, it's like re- recordings. I'd seen traffic on the road and seen pictures of them, you know, it, 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 like playing to Japanese fans and on a tour bus and stuff. And, you know, as musicians, we have those fantasies. Exactly. We have, you know, musicians and, and, and people in the arts, we have these fantasies of actually like of going to these places. And musicians, we dream of playing like, you know, these stages all around the world and, and seeing people coming out from from village courtyards to come to the center of town to play a, a, a free gig in Italy in some village that whose name I can't even like pronounce, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I are a lot alike when it comes to the travel bug because I'm the same way. I love to travel and get lost somewhere. Um, you just mentioned Japan. And uh, when was it that you first took your band to Japan? It would have been in the very early, early part of the 90s. Okay. Yeah, it's funny. The only reason I ask is because I just pulled up on my iPad a picture of uh, you and uh, Martin Verdonk and Steve Lukather at the Blue Note in Japan. <laughs> comparing and tattoos, and you're comparing tattoos, and it's it's a great photo. <laughs> <laughs> Have you worked with Steve yeah, Lukather before? He's he's such a character. Yeah, he's, Steve Steve is such a character, and recently. Uh, on the last album, we recorded a version of Lowdown, which is basically Toto and Boz Gag. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, uh, w- w- you know, I played it to the guys, and uh, I was listening to the guitar parts, and I was thinking, Steve is one of those guys who can play the hell out of a guitar, but he also knows how to just chip away just a, a one little riff, and then or play a simple, like long extended guitar note. You know, on a, you know, like on those guitar breaks on Lowdown. I love it. Every night I play it, I kind of like 
tonight, Bluey, you are Steve. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. You know, I, I want to, I want to uh, sort of continue on um, the track that you just talked to, Lowdown. I mean, that was included in uh, your previous album to your last one, which is mm-hmm. Transatlantic RPM, and it, you used Shaka Khan to sing it, and uh, it was yeah. uh, who, who was is it Biondi? Mario Biondi, oh, Mario Biondi. Biondi. Who's, who's just coming to town today, and who's well, I'll, I'll be having dinner with later tonight. Yeah, really. I'm producing his record. Yeah, I like Mario Biondi. He's got a great track called "This Is Who yeah. You Are," who I I just think is wonderful. Oh, he's a killer, isn't he? You know, I was bringing that up because I honestly, you know, we're so purists when it comes down to Toto music and and Boss Gags, and we always think nobody can ever do Low Down again <laughs> like that, and nobody should ever do it because it's a holy it's a holy track. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but when I first when I heard your track, your your version of it, I'm like, holy cow, Bluey did it. <laughs> he did it. It's it's an amazing, phenomenal track yeah. that I think every uh, everybody will totally uh, tip nop, nod their hats, you know, towards you in respect because you pulled it off. This is in a very different way. Yeah. Well, well the thing is, you know, if you've got Shaka and Mario, you can afford to kind of at least do the song because they're going to bring they're great singers. Are going to bring an inter- interpretation to it. I didn't want to step away too far from the original. You know, I'm uh, you know, it's hard enough trying to get anyone to play it what they think is a simple riff, but it's like the the space between Jeff Paul Caro's bass drums, you know, yeah, alone, you know, absolutely. It's, like, it's just like ridiculous. You know, it's like people, drummers will sit there and think they're playing it, but yeah. they're not playing it. Yeah. <laughs> the record, you know, it's like over and over again, you know, the production ideas, the thing of using two hi- hi-hats, you know, uh, and doing an overdub and little things that people may miss out on, you know, but that record is so well produced and, Every record that I've done a, a cover of has to have an attachment to my past. Mm-hmm. I used to sell that record in a little record shop that I worked in in the 70s mm-hmm. on Tottenham Road, and I sold so many copies of that. I reckon that I am responsible for at least 50% of the, the records that, <laughs> that, that, of that record That's that great. is owned by people in London. Wow. You know, it's like I had people come from everywhere to buy it. You know, I, I would be playing that. You know, people would come in a shop, and sometimes people say, oh, man, you've been playing that record all week. But... Most of the time, it was a shop that people would come in. It was like transient. You know, they would come in and then go out of town. And so I was getting a new batch of people all the time. Yeah. And I sold so many copies of that. Amazing. You know? wow. Your new record, Surreal, is uh, I, we, we tip our hats to you because, not number one, um, you really did entitle the record the right name because it's very surreal. It's a wonderful piece of work. and uh, But I want to sort of focus a little bit on you bringing in bright new artists uh, for this project. Uh, you're introducing Mo Brandis, Natalie Williams, and uh, tell us about uh, this project. It's, it's a wonderful project that you've just released. It's called Surreal. Yeah. Well, after Transatlantic RPM, I felt I'd reach a kind of a peak in terms of my desire and my obvious kind of gravitational pull to work with some of the greats from my past, you know? Right. On Transatlantic RPM, I'd work with Leon Ware. Yeah, amazing. I worked with uh, Shaka Khan, Al McKay from the fire. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, it just doesn't get any better than that, you know? It's like those people are just probably... Just those three alone are probably responsible for 50% of my music listening, mm-hmm. you know, in some way or another. Because, you know, Leon Ware just didn't only make great albums by himself, but we're talking Minnie Ripperton here. We're talking Marvin Gaye, mm-hmm. you know. Right, exactly. We're talking Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. you know. It's ridiculous, like, <laughs> amount of music. With You know, when we speak about Al McKay, we're talking about the Watts Project. We're talking about Earth, Wind & Fire, but we also 
talking about Patrice Russian. You know, it's like he did all those albums, those early albums with Patrice Russian. Wonderful music, you know, and uh, it's like suddenly I've worked with, you know, emotions. You yeah. know, he's, he's on all these records that I own, you know, it's like I've worked with these people and I felt like that is definitely what you call a pinnacle, but also a closing of a chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, something new has to happen here, something other than what went on in the last record has to happen here. Yeah. And uh, that path was me trying to bring in younger people collaborating with people who have not yet been heard on the circuit where I've been working for the last 33 years. You know, they've been trading the music in a, in a different scene. And um, that came in the shape of mainly with, uh, you know, I had my core band. I had my, uh, my Matt Cooper on keyboards. I had my, my Francis on bass. Um, but I've got a few guest players, like young bass players. But I've got, like, a, a young percussionist and a young drummer who have never recorded with Incognito before, one from Italy, one from Portugal, you know, uh, Joao, who had been, li- uh, the percussionist who'd been living in China. So when it came to me giving a reference, like, oh, you know, we, we want this groove to be maybe with a, w- done with like a rototom. And I remember saying to him, you know, more kind of Curtis Mayfield. And, he's go, who, and he'll say to me, you know, a 22-year-old saying to me, who's that? And I thought, oh, my goodness, this kid doesn't know who Curtis Mayfield is. <laughs> Things I take so much for granted. You know, Mo Brandis, who, though he's soulful and has got that whole mm-hmm. um, soulful male vocal thing happening, yeah, it's not really like Tony or uh, Chris Ballin, who's been in before, who are definitely direct influence of Stevie Wonder sure, and, right. uh, and, uh, and maybe gospel singers and also... Um, you know, like Donny Hathaway kind of type style sure, vocalist. Right. He's more like maybe somebody who's been listening to to that, but through that, but with maybe more influenced by John Legend and, and younger soul vocalists, you know, mm-hmm. more the younger crooners that are out now. And uh, Natalie Williams, who's another generation of British R&B singers who suddenly have arrived, you know, because I remember in the 80s and the 90s, uh, you couldn't get great jazz singers that could do R&B in the UK. You know, you had one or two. Mm-hmm. You had your Misha Paris, you know, that could do something, but she would be, like, all tied up with her own project. But it was hard finding. Now you can find people, you know, and yeah. uh, someone like Natalie is not just a great singer, but mm-hmm. developed into, like, a great songwriter. You know, so suddenly I was, like, writing with these people and, uh, you know, a drummer from Rome, Francesco Mandolio, who's like in his early 20s also, has been playing and listening to bands like Incognito, but suddenly the energy that he brings because he's so keen, you know, the keenness to kind of go, when I would play him some of those uh, really old, rare, rare records and go, I want the beat to be more like this and this sound of the drums to be like this. They're not just your studio guys or your guys that have been doing incognito for so many years that they kind of turn around and go, yeah, but that's not my sound mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or turn around and say, but I'm using sonar drums. I'm sponsored by them. So I can't use this, right. you know, and like, I don't really want to change my sound, you know? And you go, what? You know, it's like, how are you going to create something new if people don't even want to change their sound? Exactly, you know, right. it's like, so it, it was interesting for me because I could suddenly, I realized that I could push my production levels again, to be fresh mm-hmm. and not just repeating myself. Because I think that in the past few albums before that, I was kind of repeating myself a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in terms of my pr- some of my production direction. But with these guys, 
Now, I was actually going, throwing the rhythm rules out the window. I was saying to Francis, man, just come up with a couple of, I want to write directly over bass line riffs. You know, it's like, just give me really hard driving bass line riffs. And right. then I would write on top of it, you know. Wow, so neat. I was writing almost like against a raw, just like crazy bass line, you know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. That's where you get a track from, like, the less you know. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. Because the guy's written a riff rather than sitting there and just playing a chord and then kind of putting the bass line around it. It was like a riff. Everything was riff driven, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm slotting everything on top of that driving riff, you know. It's a different vehicle. It takes a different vocal attitude, you know. Yeah. Hey, Eddie and Bluey, uh, let's take a short break. And I want to check out this incredible track from Incognito's latest album, Surreal. And this is a track called The Less You Know. There are times of question why you give all that 
a moment ago, you mentioned uh, Mo Brandis, and um, you mentioned that he's worked with a lot of uh, younger talent these days, but he's got a pretty impressive uh, resume of, of people he has worked with, such as yeah. Celine Dion and Kelly Rowland, Leanne Rimes, Britney Spears, Dante Thomas, and just to name a few. Mo is German, and we have a uh, Inside Music Cast correspondent from Germany named Uwe Reith. Mm-hmm. And Uwe was real interested. He knows of Mo, and he wants to know uh, yeah. how you guys stumbled upon each other, how you connected one of the biggest sources of like names and and like if I if I'm in need of something are other musicians who are already in the band. He'd been suggested by uh, Vanessa Haynes, who's like a powerhouse vocalist who features on the album, right, who's right. a very very important. Probably she's my kingpin right. because she's the person that I have to rely on to be able to kind of like cut tracks from like Jocelyn Brown mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. Mesa on the road and cover and then cover her own direction. So she has that kind of whole range from like being able to kind of do like a Lolita Holloway type of vocal right. to doing something with the subtlety of a Mesa song, you know? Exactly. So for, for me, she's like, she, I always go to her, first of all, when, when I'm looking for vocalists, just to see where, where her idea is, because she's one of the hardest working function band singers in, in the UK. And uh, she's toured the world with um, various... Uh, luminaries, you know, like uh, in the business. Uh, I know that she did Van Morrison's band for quite a while, and uh, she also did Billy Ocean on tour. And um, she suggested Mo, and uh, then his name came up again with our then drummer before I started this new album, which is Pete Ray Begin, who went to do Level Forty Two. Right. He'd mentioned that he'd worked with Mo as well, and I should give him a, a crack because Tony had taken time now to go and work with Sade. On, on tour, a gig which I got him a few years back, you know, I introduced him to Sade and she, she took him on tour. So I kind of picked up on Mo's name two or three times from different band members. And I was still looking because I was thinking, mm, I'm not sure about a German kid, whether he's going to have, you know, obviously kind of, you know, with all those prejudices you have in your head in terms of like, <laughs> you know, whether somebody who's singing soul is going to really have it from Germany. And I'm thinking accent and I'm thinking, you know, and, and I had those in, in my head, so therefore I didn't put him at the top of my list. And then I checked a YouTube clip of him singing at the piano, playing, and I thought, oh, that's my boy right there. <laughs> you know, that's my boy, you know. And uh, I gave him a call, when I, and we tried to, you know, do some writing. And first two writing sessions we did was the two songs that he has co-written on, on his record. Uh-huh. And then he, then he sang one of my songs, but we just had a, a real understanding of each other you know because he functions in a way that where i don't in in a writing situation yeah it was um goodbye to yesterday one of those tracks that he co-wrote with you exactly yes that's an amazing track uh i i made a note here because number one it has some of the nicest rhythm guitar hooks i've heard in a very very long time oh thank you but uh it it it, uh you know it plays behind which plays behind the verses that that mo branda sings and uh so you talked about these parts and the construction of this whole thing how you wanted it to be composed huh yeah i mean i i turned up at his house uh, I, I live in north london he lives in south london i took a cab from north london and i had his guitar riff yeah and all I had was this guitar, but I thought, I'd like to do something over this idea. Yeah. And uh, I went to his house, but on the way out in the cab, I came up with this little, um, the little chorus idea. I would say it was about maybe 80 to 90% of that chorus. He tidied mm-hmm. up that chorus. But when I got together with him, he took it, uh, helped me to take the riff. And the riff was going to be, the, the initial chorus idea was on that guitar riff. 
but we changed it. it. The riff became like the verse, and then we took the vocal lyrics and melody and we changed it, and it became the chorus yeah. with most piano part underneath it. Yeah. And it's taken it somewhere else. And uh, yeah, we wrote what initially we thought was the chorus, which became a verse. <laughs> and then we changed it and we kind of like switched it around, you know? <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it, it worked really nicely. It's, uh, it's, it's a very interesting track. And, uh, you know, I would encourage, you know, every guitarist that's listening, and we have a lot of guitarists that are listening, to listen to the, the rhythm parts on, on this track, Goodbye to Yesterday, and uh, you'll, you'll get educated very nicely. <laughs> Like we mentioned, uh, Mo Brandis is the lead vocalist on the track Goodbye to Yesterday. So let's take a quick break and check this one out. This is from our guest today, Bluey Monic, and his band Incognito. Behind 
You know, another, another um, track that's really standout is Capricorn Sun that Mesa sings. And yeah. um, I tell you, she couldn't sing this thing any better. I mean, how much direction did you have to direct her? I mean, once you put a song in front of her, does she just you just let her fly? Well, yeah, basically, I, I, I'd sung the song yeah. in my own kind of uh, – when I sing something, the good thing about me singing a song to a singer is that I sing it very straight. I don't flower it because I can't. You know, I'm, I've got this really limited uh, foghorn of a vocal tone. You know, <laughs> it's like, and so I keep it simple. I keep it light, and I just put the idea down, and uh, the little, you know, the little extra harmony lines which I may hear, I throw those down, and uh, and because we only had, I think two days, she came in to, from from the states to to get the work done. It's nice for her to be able to come in and, and have a kind of a guide of where to go. Yeah. And uh, Mesa does what she does. She she can take whatever you throw at her, and by the time she opens her mouth and it comes out of her mouth, it's like, oh, my Lord, it's something else. It's like it's no longer just grown out of the ground. It's actually made in heaven. Yeah. You know, it's like right. it's been transported, you know, via the angels back <laughs> and, and been put on the track. You know, it's like it, the, all that soil and kind of dirtiness of the plant coming out the ground has been washed away and you've got mesa and it's like a big shining sunflower. You know, it's like <laughs> it, it's 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 a wonderful thing. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I always love seeing mesa work away, chip away sometimes, and, and I think, and, and, and she mumbles when she's l- learning something. So I'm thinking to myself, is she getting it? She's like, she's <laughs> singing in her head, you know, uh-huh. and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I've got the wrong key. I spent, she has me like kind of sitting there wondering, have I done the right thing or, yeah. you know, it's like you, you don't, you don't really know because she's like getting it in her head and then she sings it really light like a baby. Right. And then you think to yourself, oh, my God, no, it sounds nice here, but here it's not going to work because I haven't got it, you know. And she yeah. goes, no, 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 it's okay, people, I got it, I got it. <laughs> then she'll go in, warm up on the microphone, and then bang, you know. She it's blows like, you away. oh, it's there, there it is. <laughs> That's an amazing. That, that must be you know? so neat to see an artist like this at, at work, uh, you know, when you, you've you pretty much written music for her and you give it to her and, and she just completes it. I mean, it must be just a real thrill just to see that, wow, we got it, you know. Oh, yeah, because what you've got is like, you know, it's a demo and anyone hearing it is going to go, oh, yeah. is that it? You know, or like, I like that song, but who's going to sing it? You know, yeah, exactly. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like now and again, I, I'll do a demo whereby, you know, I think they're going to hate it. But they're like, no, I'm not going to change that line. That's really great. And but the great singers will also take a very simple line and go, you know what? I need to flower this up and I need to put me in there. And Mesa does that. Yeah, you know? yeah that's very neat. She'll take it. But. What I find fascinating also is very often Mesa will stick to my melodies and probably more than most singers. I would say no, not probably. Definitely more than most singers, Mesa will stick to my melodies. Wow. And just because of her sheer tone and quality of her voice, make sense of it. And very often it will be the right thing because what's come out of my mind is made, maybe it hasn't come out of my mouth, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like it came out of my mind and it is all shining and brilliant, you know? Yeah, exactly. And some singers, they come in and they listen to me singing it and they don't want to go where I've gone because right. they're thinking it's not brilliant, you know? Yeah. But, but Mesa will stick to it because she'll understand how it could work if she gets the tone right on it. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that is always magical for me. That's, you know, I'm not saying that I always write the best things, but what I'm saying is like Mesa will see when I've got something right and she won't kind of like go and replace it. She'll just kind of do her version of it, but stick true to what it originally was intended for because, you know, certain notes and lines, the way they flow, just really has affinity with the bass line and chords. And that's the way I think music works. And certain people will hear it and not really hear where that is working because they're thinking of the way they think. They're not even really listening to you. They're just listening to the words and the lyrics, and they're, they're looking forward to the moment that they're going to put their own stamp on it. Exactly. Uh-huh. And, and their stamp is very often changing your melody or going off mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. And Mesa, I never have to do that. She'll know when, when she can improve something. That's neat. But most of the time, she'll just use her tone to make it sound like chalk and cheese. <laughs> right, wow. exactly. You know, Eddie and I have been listening to Surreal quite a bit here lately, and uh, and the song Capricorn Sun is, is definitely one that Eddie and I have really latched onto. And uh, so let's let's take a quick break, and let's give our listeners a chance to check this one out.
Blue, you have just recently uh, finished uh, the first half of your tour, f- which promotes Surreal. And you were here in the States for a few uh, few gigs yeah, from Atlanta. Was, that was great. How did that go? We, Tell we, us about this. We started off with America. We usually we finished like a year later. Uh-huh. <laughs> this was like, you know, just before the record even came out. Yeah. We came to America. How'd it go? Amazing tour. Yeah. You know, I love the tour bus. And I like going through America on, on the bus because, you know, I'm like a fan of Jack Kerouac, you know, like on the road. And I'm that guy, you know. I, you know, there's a bit of a Jack Moriarty in me, you know. It's like, and you know, it's like a mixture of the two, you know. There is this kind of desire to be on the road, you know. Yeah. And, in, and you feel that more in America than anywhere else when you're traveling in a bus because the road seems to be never-ending. Exactly, know? And, right. You know, you connect, immediately connected with every movie that you've that you've seen, you know, because it's, it was all shot there, you know. It's <laughs> like, it, it's, you, you, you just feel a certain intensity about coming out of those long, long roads, you know, it's like where the houses are not just stacked up next to each other, but the vast expanse of the United States yeah. and going through all the small towns and then suddenly going over a bridge and seeing New York City or, Detroit approaching, you know. Yeah, uh, it's just like it's it's the real kind of cinematic in in my head, and I loved that journey. I I was really living it, you know, telling stories and and watching movies with the band, you know, <laughs> eating crap food sometimes because we were right in the middle of nowhere, you know. And it's like, you know what I mean? It's like I don't think we've ever eaten so much junk food in, in like a year. <laughs> that's what we Americans provide the best you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like we, you know we were like oh man you know we gotta stop and eat some food and it was like we're in the middle of nowhere guys all you're gonna get here is like kind of Junk like food. Dents and McDonald's out here <laughs> like, that's we neat like, I'm we glad it was like, okay come on let's do it <laughs> Hey, 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 listen, uh, we're about ready to finish up right here, but uh, I have one one uh, uh, a question for you. Being that you have played in the States quite often, and, you know, um, what's the – and there is an, uh, an interesting appetite and uh, a market for your music here, the, the such as such as myself, but uh, are there any differences as to what the, the demand is, the approach and the appeal of your music outside the States as opposed to here? What kind of differences do you see? Um it's like, you know, you couldn't go and, like, me doing a gig without Mesa in America just wouldn't work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, I've done it, but it's like, you can do it, but I, you know, it's like, it works out there. It's like, in Italy, as, I mean, I would like to have Mesa everywhere, you know, but obviously Mesa lives in America, she has a child, she has a career. I know that's not possible, you know, it's like, and sometimes we can only pay just, like, enough to kind of just get by, you know, on, right. on a gig, travel, like, across Europe, you know, and uh, so I think that there's a real connection with the American connection with Mesa and and the audience with us, Mm -hmm. and uh, I I never take that for granted, and I never want to take away from that. So there is that point, and also there is, we play a different kind of set, because a lot of the places in America, people are sitting down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we, you know, if we go to Korea, it's like, you know, it's like the Beatles has arrived, you know, it's like, it's a different thing. <laughs> Kids are jumping up and down and they're screaming your name and, you know, it's a different attitude. Uh-huh. In Italy, there's a sophistication. Some places are sit down, but some places it's like, listen, man, we're, we're, we're a football audience, you know, it's like, we're like a soccer type audience. So they're chanting the, the incognito with it and, and doing some kind of like wave and kind of like, and, and, and it's like it's it's, it's an, just a different reaction wherever you go, you know. Um, German audiences tend to be more kind of club and really knowledgeable uh, 
you know they want as much instrumental as you've got songs <laughs> right. you know they want like they right. want to hear some yeah. rare stuff which you've never played uh-huh. right you know it's like the japanese are you know if you went for a quiet period you could hear a pin drop you know you know some audiences <laughs> so like in, in europe in america people are chatting so much you know it's like you could hear more noise from the audience than you can from the stage yeah. exactly. you know because it's the nature people are like laughing and and, and enjoying and kind of but in Japan, there's a kind of respect for the listening, and then suddenly you think, "Oh, they are, they really didn't get this one." And suddenly you finish the song, and they go, <laughs> "You know, so they, they, they explode!" Alive, right? You know? In Kazakhstan, they just looked at you stunned because they'd never seen anything like it. You know, <laughs> <That's great>. uh, <laughs> in Georgia, you you like kind of like you're thinking, "Oh, it's going to be like Kazakhstan," and it's like. Forget that, man. They're just like kind of mad crowd, you know. Oh, wow. In in Russia, in one minute it'll be like kind of super warm audience. Next minute it'll be some kind of audience that is paid for you, don't even know you, but they're super rich, so that you're playing, right. you know, like to the halfway through through the set. You know, it's like you you realize that you're you know, it's like they're not here for you. You know, they're here for they're here for the event. You know, so different things. You know, it's like wherever you go around the world, but. There's always a warmth amongst the real incognito crowds, mm-hmm. which we play predominantly most of the time. It's like there's this warmth, understanding. There is this feeling of music is the glue that unifies us, you know, and we're here for that reason. And and we know that and they know that. And therefore, it's like a real, real great night every time. That's awesome. That was such a great description. I, we've never had anyone, uh, we've never had a guest do that before, you know, know. kind of explain different countries. the different countries and the different <laughs> crowds. And that's, that was really cool to hear. So. That was neat. Well, Blue, we can't thank you enough for being a, a part of Inside Music Cast and spending all this time with us. And, yes. and we've totally enjoyed it. And uh, before we go, I wanted to ask if, uh, since your your new album, Surreal, is, is uh, out, we'd like to know, uh, we'll just pass along the information as to where people can purchase it. Uh, Amazon's uh, and 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 those type of places you can okay. still get the, right. the physical r- record, um, and uh, also we'll have um, incognito.org.uk. Gotcha. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, hey, Bluey, um, thanks again. And I also want to thank uh, Rob Evanoff from eighteen eighty eight Media PR for setting this up for us too. Absolutely, thank thanks, you, Rob. Rob. Bluey, take care, and let's let's try to stay in touch. Maybe we can catch up down the road again. I we skipped over a lot of things we oh, would have yeah. liked to have talked about in the interest oh, of time. Oh, you're welcome. You know, it's like I love chatting about music, and uh, especially to uh, guys like yourselves because there seems to be a, not just a, a, an interest, but it's genuinely part of your world and what you do. You're connected with the music in the full way, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that always. For, for me, that always completes these situations for me. It makes it enjoyable. Uh, I know I'm talking to people who are uh, who are not just being put in a job to kind of get some the information of somebody and put it on the air. You know, it's not you know it's not broadcast architecture. You know, right? Exactly. exactly. Well, we appreciate that so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. 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 Special thanks to Bluey Monic for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents: Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape. Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. <laughs>